I'm going to talk today about the rule of sin. Uh, in verse 7, God gives this ominous warning to Cain. Uh, he says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Uh, instead, we find that Cain loses the struggle, or probably more accurately, never puts up a fight in the first place, and sin does in fact rule over him. And it's a confronting story. That, I mean, a, a man kills his own brother. and not even, It's not even retribution or payback for something that his brother did against him. Uh, it's just a, like a petty jealousy. Uh, on top of that, these are the first two men ever born. So the first one, Cain, destroys both his brother and, in a way, uh, himself. And things are not off to a great start. Uh, we all know of sibling rivalries, but rarely uh, would it uh, escalate to something like this. But it took no time flat to go from Adam and Eve to Cain killing his brother. Now, to put matters into context and, and to highlight the devastation, in the previous chapter, when God spoke to the serpent, uh, he said this. God spoke uh, after the first sin. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So in Eve's first offspring, we see the beginnings of this struggle between good and evil. Uh, and from chapter 3, uh, we should have perhaps expected this, that evil would overcome good uh, in the offspring of Eve, just as it did in Eve and her husband Adam. But then goes, God goes on to say, to the, uh, he says uh, to the serpent, he, this is speaking of the woman's offspring, I think it's, uh, it's at the bottom there, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we observed last week that even as God was pronouncing this curse on the snake, uh, he was also making a promise that one of Eve's offspring one day would enter a deadly duel with Satan and that he would be struck himself, but in his death he would deal an even more crushing and final blow against sin and death, destroying them both forever. Now all this... Jesus did on the cross. Jesus proved uh, the finality of his victory over the serpent, over Satan, over death, by three days later rising again. But we're still only on page three of the Bible uh, and a lot of water is going to pass under the bridge before Eve's offspring is going to have victory. It's thousands of years and in the meantime, the Bible tracks the long and mostly pretty depressing storyline of the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve spiralling downwards in servitude to sin. In fact, I mean, in chapter 4, they've already fallen off the cliff. Adam and Eve kick things off poorly enough in chapter 3, but the story uh, falls all the way downhill in chapter 4. So here's what we're going to do today. We're looking at this, the rule of sin, uh, because since chapter 3, sin has tarnished this world. Uh, and in chapter 4, it gets one up, sin and evil gets one up on Cain and Abel. Uh, and apart from the rest of the Bible, the rule of sin uh, is a pretty neat explanation of much of what comes out of our hearts and what we see in the world. A lot can be explained by acknowledging the reality and even the rule of this thing called sin. But before that, I want to back up and revisit something that I ran out of time for last week at the end of chapter 3. 
Uh, chapter 3 tells the story of the fall of mankind. It sort of sets this wheel in motion for uh, this tumbling off the cliff. Uh, this fall from a state of perfection and life to the fullest with God to the world we discover in chapter 4 where uh, sin and difficulty and rivalry and death seems to reign. Uh, the greatest chapter from the goodness of God's creation in chapters 1 and 2 at the end of uh, chapter 3, uh, the greatest change from the goodness of God's creation by the end of chapter 3 is that God has cast the man and woman out of the garden away from his presence So that where before there was communion, where God would even walk with them, now there is separation between them and God. That is the most significant uh, ongoing impact from the end of Genesis chapter 3. But this separation that's been introduced, it's not a total separation. It's not complete. There is still interaction between God and his creation. It's not entirely severed. It's just broken. Uh, Otherwise, uh, if it was a total separation, the story would have ended way back then and no one would have bothered to write it all down because there's nothing much to look forward to. But here's what happens at the end of chapter 3. God shut Adam and Eve out of the garden, but he did maintain relationship with them as was always the plan for the people that he made. So in this new land of something like separation from God, there was still hope for a relationship, uh, but it was what I would call relationship mediated through religion. Now, I don't know if people still say this. Maybe you've heard someone say this. For a long time, I've heard Christians say, Christianity is not a religion. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. And I want to say, uh, I love, love, love the heart of that statement. Uh, The reminder that what God wants is us, not a ritual. Uh, We should prioritise knowing God and prize loving him over the top of, uh, you know, performing rituals and checking boxes, uh, which is what religion sounds like. But I will say that to go so far as to say that Christianity is not a religion, well, it's a little bit funny, because it is a religion. Um, And the Jewish faith that produced Jesus, our Messiah, is most certainly a religion. And it was God's gift. God's gift. Religion is God's gift to mediate or to set the rules for a relationship with him it is religion is about relationship Uh, and the last verses of chapter three begin to set the shape for some of the aspects of the religious practices that god initiated so that his people could continue to engage and relate with him so let's let's tie up the loose ends from genesis chapter three um Just a couple of the verses. It says at the end that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You might remember uh, that when they ate from the tree of knowledge, the first thing that happened, their eyes were opened. But instead of gaining the knowledge that they'd hoped, they actually just saw their own nakedness and their shame. Uh, And then it says in verse 24 that God drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life, so that uh, they were cut off from the source of life. So first, a comment about the garments of skin up there from verse 21. Uh, It's interesting that back in chapter 2, God had said to Adam that on the day that you eat of the tree of knowledge, you shall surely die. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And it's interesting too that Adam and Eve did not die that day, did they? In a way. 
Now, there's a few ways of looking at that, but all of them do require that we accept that at some level, death did come to Adam and Eve that day because uniformly, every reference to these events through the rest of the Bible, they agree without question that death entered the scene that day through Adam. So two ways of reconciling that, the fact that they didn't, you know, drop dead on the spot and yet death did enter the world that day is this. You could say that they did die that day in the sense that that day they were removed from the source of eternal life. So in a similar way that you can keep a flower alive for a few days after you pick it, if you give it the right stuff, but its fate was sealed at the moment that you plucked it. Uh, it, It began its process of death. In, in a sense, you could say that it died that day. Uh, there's another way of reconciling this, and, and, and I think probably the two are combined. It could also be that God is using the word day to refer to an era, uh, because he does this, and we do it too, in the same way that people might say, back in my day, and you're talking about a period of time, God may be saying that the eating of the fruit will usher in a new era, a new day, in which death will become the norm. And I reckon there's some merit to that. And yet I still think that the most natural way to have understood God's warning back in chapter 2 would have been that they would be struck down almost on the spot, but yet they weren't. But at least one animal did die that day. Because God had an animal killed for the purpose of covering Adam and Eve's nakedness and shame. Now, it doesn't, uh, I've always fallen short of making too much of this. I've always sort of thought, you know, they, they made coverings of leaves and God made a better covering, a more permanent covering with skin. And that's it. I, but I'm, I'm persuaded that this is an early indication of the sacrificial system uh, within the early Hebrew religion. On the day that Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, on the day that they were to die, an animal died in their place. In the same way that the sacrificial system worked that Moses uh, then went on to formalise, for your sin, you present a spotless animal which is killed symbolically in your place as a covering for your shame. Now, you wouldn't wear it in the way that it happened back in Genesis 3, but the process is the same. The implication is that because of your sin, you deserve to die. But God, in His grace began a religious system in which an animal would die instead for you. And this same sacrificial system no longer binds Christians because we are taught that all those slaughtered animals over those hundreds and thousands of years were pointing to the fact that one day Jesus would lay down his life for us all. Isn't that neat? Way back in Genesis 3, uh, we have the tools for seeing Jesus uh, with, with a surprising clarity. And I'll show you one more aspect of ancient religion uh, that communicates man's mediated relationship with God. Uh, and it's in that second reference up there. At the edge of the garden, God placed the cherubim to guard the way back so Adam and Eve couldn't return. So what are cherubim? Uh, we don't talk very much about it, but you can read various descriptions in the Bible. But throughout the Bible, the, the descriptions kind of change. One thing is certain, they always have wings, at least two of them. Um, but these are heavenly creatures, winged heavenly creatures. And that's about all we, we really get. They appear only in two more contexts in the rest of the Old Testament. One 
uh, Ezekiel, the prophet, um, they feature heavily in his visions. But the other one, this is new to me, they appear everywhere in the tabernacle, everywhere in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the tent, uh, the meeting place uh, with God. Uh, And so this tabernacle or this temple stuff is really interesting. And like I said, I only learned this connection myself recently. It makes me wonder why it's not taught uh, or whether maybe I just somehow managed to get this far with my eyes shut and you already know it. Maybe it's possible. But here's, here's the next reference to the cherubim in all the Bible. So this is uh, the next time we hear about the cherubim is in the next book in Exodus uh, chapter 25. Uh, and God commands uh, through Moses that when they're making the tabernacle uh, and the Ark of the Covenant, which is where they would keep uh, the, the tablets that uh, had written on them the Ten Commandments, God's, uh, God says, you shall make two cherubim of hammered gold on the two ends of the mercy seat. It's called the mercy seat, but it's the lid for the box. Uh, And there I will meet with you from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. So you might remember from the Bible or maybe from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark that if you pass the cherubim, if you open the ark, you are cursed to die. It's kind of like passing the cherubim back into the garden. These cherubim are wielding swords. You are cursed to die. You are not allowed past that way. The ark was placed in the central chamber of the tabernacle, uh, where only the high priest could enter, and even then only one day each year. And that central chamber was called the most holy place. It's almost, imagine this, like a garden that's being guarded. And it's being guarded by cherubim. Uh, This place was separated from the rest of the temple by a curtain or a veil. And guess how the veil was decorated? You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, and it shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. So here's the go. So first God removes man from his presence and guards the way back with cherubim. And second... In the tabernacle where people were invited to meet with God, albeit in that mediated sort of state through the religion that he's, he institutes, they're surrounded by pictures of the cherubim. These are reminders, right, of at least two things. The way back to God has been hindered by sin. You cannot get back there on pain of death. But also, think of it this way, wherever the cherubim are, God is close. He's nearby. And here in the tabernacle, God continues to lend the people a Garden of Eden-like experience whereby they can come close, if not all the way back, not all the way back, but they can come close to the place where God is hidden. Now, this tabernacle, this uh, meeting tent uh, that they sort of packed up and carried around with them through the wilderness uh, in the time of Moses, it was scaled up and made permanent when the Israelites settled in Jerusalem and built the temple. So there's still a most holy place uh, with the ark covered by the cherubim. Uh, More cherubim, actually, statues were placed in that area as well of cherubim and a curtain that separated the people and even the priests from the most holy place of God's presence. Now, it doesn't say explicitly when it comes to the temple, but it matches this curtain or veil uh, in the tabernacle that that temple curtain was almost certainly decorated with cherubim as well. Can you guess where we're going? 
Thousands of years later, when Jesus died, here's what the Bible says. At the moment that Jesus gave up his spirit, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the symbolism of that fact is is fairly well known, I think, that uh, God has opened up uh, this passageway between the most holy place where he is and uh, where, the, where the people are. Uh, that, that while for a time uh, uh, God had made um, uh, the possibility of a mediated relationship uh, possible through religion, with the death of Jesus, the path to relationship with God has been restored. But isn't that picture just made so much more vivid when you think this t- curtain that was torn had cherubim on it, guarding the way, like way back in the temple, uh, in the garden. And Jesus is the one, the only one, with the power to, to break that down and separate that. I just think that's, that's beautiful. So I would still call Christianity a religion, right? It is. But like I say, I, I like the heart of those who, who won't call it that. Uh, because our relationship with God is now mediated through relationship with Jesus. It's less through ongoing sacrifice and ritual and more through this once-for-all thing that Jesus did for us. In fact, our relationship with God is now barely mediated at all. It's, it's been opened wide open. What, what a blessing to live on this side of those events uh, where we have the privilege of being able to see the near completion, not the absolute completion, but the near completion of God's plan to reverse the curse. Now, it's a big wrap-up on chapter 3. We're pretty short on chapters 4 and 5. Let's come back to chapter 4. We should expect, what we should expect to see in chapter 4 is much of what we were set up to expect even before the fall. Women bearing children men working the ground, although admittedly each of those are more challenging now. Uh, And in the new regime, we should expect to see a damaged relationship between God and man, but a relationship nonetheless, one that God, uh, through his grace, has continued to mediate. And in three verses, in the first three verses of chapter 4, we see, see all of those things. Eve gives birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. She's very pleased. She says, with the help of God, I've given birth uh, to a man. I'm sure she's calling to mind this promise of the offspring. Uh, Both boys follow in their father's footsteps to tend the earth. Cain does crops and Abel does livestock. And both men then bring an offering of their produce to God. This is, you know, relationship mediated through religion. But it immediately goes badly. Because Cain's offering is unacceptable to God. Uh, Each man brought some of what uh, he produced through his labour. Cain brought uh, fruit and Abel brought uh, uh, probably a lamb. But the text expands on Abel's offering to explain that what he brought uh, from verse 4 was of the firstborn of the flock uh, and of their fat portions. And already we see that religion, as God instituted it, even ritual and sacrifice, was never designed to divorce the heart from proceedings. Uh, It was never about just going through the motions of offering a sacrifice and any old thing would do. It was always a test of the heart. And so while one man offered to God some of what he had, 
I, I tend to think it probably doesn't matter that it was fruit and not, uh, and not a beast, but it was just some of what Cain had. Uh, Abel had offered God his very best, the firstborn. And this rule exists today, that even when God asks that we continue to give, even just a portion of what he's given us, our money or other resources, uh, what he is most concerned about by far is the state of our heart as we do it. It's why in the New Testament when Paul asks the Corinthian church for an offering to ease the burden of the the poor, uh, he says to them, you know, when you decide how much you're going to give for the poor brothers and sisters uh, in this other part of the world, he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The measure of how much they should give isn't by their income or their, or their savings, but by their heart and what they're able to give cheerfully. It's why when Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and then a poor widow putting in two small copper coins, Jesus said, truly this poor widow has put in more than all those rich because she put in all that she had to live on. Monetarily it was less, but in terms of what it meant to her, it was everything. So let the story of Cain and Abel in the first place raise the question for you, what do you give to God? What does he get out of you? Now remember, of course, he doesn't need you. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? He's got all that he needs without you. But does he only get the leftovers? Does he only get Sunday morning? And even then, only if you've got nothing else on? It's not just church on Sunday, by the way. Uh, Right now, uh, I'm looking at myself. Uh, I'm fighting a lack of motivation to get back into running. Uh, But on the mornings I do get up, I time it so I have just enough time to race out the door and get back in time to help with Brecky and the kids. I'm also currently fighting a lack of motivation to read the Bible for myself uh, and, and to engage in disciplined prayer but I haven't factored that into my alarm. Maybe you're familiar. And maybe there's something natural and human about it being easier to move first thing in the morning than to pause or meditate. Uh, But why are we able to use our imagination to do exercise or pursue hobbies or to consume entertainment, but we wait to be spoon-fed the daily bread of our relationship with God by someone else? So what does God get from you? Is it just the leftovers? Now, what becomes interesting in in this story then of Cain and Abel is that while God isn't pleased with Cain's offering, he doesn't seem particularly upset either, or at least uh, his displeasure pales in comparison to what happens next. See, he's a big God. He's not easily angered. But God is troubled by Cain's anger. It's funny, isn't it, how of anyone in this scenario, it's the one who caused the offence that gets angry. Cain is a, he's a fragile guy. Is it the truth that hurts? I don't know. Uh, it doesn't say exactly whether Cain is angry at God for not accepting his offering or he's jealous at Abel for getting God's pleasure, but he takes it out on Abel, certainly expresses itself in jealousy. And jealousy is 
It is a deadly sin, a literally deadly sin. We see it back here in Cain and Abel. If you read the motivations for the religious leaders to having Jesus put to death time and time again in the New Testament, it is their jealousy. It is their jealousy of him. It leads to death and murder. And it'll kill yourself while you're at it. It's no way to live. But God says this. The Lord said to Cain, these are the words on the screen, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain does nothing of the sort. Instead of learning from God, he learns from the snake in chapter 3. He deceives his brother. He entices him out into the open field uh, where he then strikes his own brother and kills him. And in a a copy again of what happened back in chapter 3, God then comes asking, Cain, where is your brother Abel? In verse 9. Now, if Adam and Eve's response in chapter 3 is bad, uh, when they pass the buck, they admit they're wrong, but they try to deflect the blame onto others. Well, Cain's response to God's question shows a really sharp drop-off in respect and regard for God. He is arrogant and harsh. He's even sarcastic. Oh, I don't know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? So smug, so arrogant. Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, you know what you did. And then we witness again the sweet, soft heart of God that goes out to his children. In verse 10, God says, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I mean, it's almost certainly poetic, not literal. But isn't that poetry? To imagine as Abel's blood is disappearing into the dust that God can hear it crying out to him. Certainly nothing is hidden from God. But in particular, doesn't, the lo- doesn't he love each and every one that he has made? And from this point on, we become painfully aware that the events of chapter 3 are no aberration. Chapter 3 is not just a blip and things soon pick up and go up and up after that. You know, chapter 3 is the wake-up call that we really needed and then everyone just sort of tightened the belt and, you know, got on with it. The course has been set for mankind to continue a downward spiral into depravity and to actively distance themselves from God. From verse 11, uh, God repeats and intensifies the curse that he'd placed on Adam. Uh, To Cain, uh, the ground is again cursed. So while for Adam, uh, the the, the ground would produce thorns and thistles alongside the good plants, uh, for Cain, God says, the ground shall no longer yield to you its strength. Now, Strength, maybe good stuff still going to come, maybe thorns and thistles, but it feels worse, right? God is intensifying what he'd said to Adam. Uh, while Adam was sent out of the garden, Cain is sent even further afield uh, to be a wanderer. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer. And yet, in God's surprising mercy, he doesn't kill Cain. I'm inclined to think he probably should have, right? That would be just. Um, but. God is right. Uh, It would have seemed a a very reasonable and just response, a life for a life. But instead, again, God preserves and even protects Cain's life. And Cain goes on to have his own family line, which we hear about 
uh, up until uh, towards the end of chapter 4. But one thing is surely certain from here, that out of Cain and Abel, neither of them is Eve's offspring that we were told in chapter 3 to start looking forward to. It's not one of them. Well, one of them's dead, and the other one's a murderer. So in chapter 5, which like I said, we're not going to go into in detail, but you you could skim it and you could get the picture. The storyline of Eve's offspring is again picked up. It says that Adam and Eve have a third son, a third offspring, a third cause for hope in this ongoing battle. Uh, And this is now the line that's going to get picked up and carried through the rest of the Bible. Uh, His name is Seth. Maybe Seth is the one, but he's not because he dies. And we really learn almost nothing more about him. But that's sort of, that's the trajectory that we're headed on. This is why, you know, th- this really is the story now of humanity and expectation. The, the question from Genesis 1 to 3 is, who is the offspring? And this is why the genealogies are such a rich, uh, important part of the Old Testament. If you don't know that that question is the big one, then you're going to read all these lists of names and think, why are these all here? But just in closing, I want to say, make just a few comments about uh, this most arresting statement of God's because uh, it's just so practical. It is, so, uh, it is the kind of thing that ought to be ringing in your ears. This is a daily warning. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So a couple of statements on each of those lines. Sin is crouching at the door. Friends, you are being watched. More than watched, you're being stalked. You are prey. Opportunities to sin are everywhere. It's like a smorgasbord. In workplace gossip rooms, I mean tea rooms, uh, on the internet. Uh, You can't even escape your own mind, right? There's opportunities on your own bed to sin through doubts or fantasies or jealousies and resentments. And in fact, sin has a habit of leading to more sin. God actually begins this first statement by saying to Cain, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's as if one step down the wrong path has a way of leading us into a deeper and a deeper hole, like the white lie that grows into an elaborate ruse, or the lazy sacrifice which led to jealousy, which led to murder. Please remember, you are not above sin. Even as a saved person, you are not above a devastating fall. Let me say a word about marriage. Uh, On your wedding day, you make a promise to be faithful to your husband or wife. You must make that promise. You can't get out of the day without making that promise, that you will be faithful. And you must keep that promise. But I would suggest this, and look, maybe this is a little play on words, but this is what I would suggest to you. While you should promise to be faithful, you should stop short of ever saying, I would never be unfaithful. I could never do a thing like that. I would never commit adultery. Stop short of saying those words. Because there's a subtle but important difference between making a commitment to faithfulness and then also somehow suggesting that you are somehow above it, that it could never catch you off guard. Well, as soon as you start to believe that you won't succumb, you're already off guard and sin is crouching at your door. 
To pretend you're not capable of sin is to believe a lie that it is not crouching, stalking you, and it is. Temptation lies everywhere. So that's right, that's marriage and faithfulness, it's everything. Okay. Never trick yourself into thinking, I could, that's a line I would never cross. You are capable. Sin is deceptive and it's out to get you and it's pretty deceptive. The second statement here is, its desire is for you. So interesting, right? Everyone wants to be loved. And that's kind of the game that sin plays with us, temptation. That is the deception of sin. That, you know, here is safety. Here is comfort. Here is something good. When we're tempted to stray into self-indulgence, it's nice to think that this way of life is going to love me so much better than, than God's way. God, God's the one that holds back. But, it, but if I do this, then I can, I can do whatever I want. There's more freedom in the jungle beyond God's garden than there is in, in his pastures that he's prepared for you. But since sin's desire isn't to care for you or to pamper you, it is to rule over you and command you. Jesus says, truly everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I mean, that's not what sin says on the tin though, right? Or on the bottle. Gambling ads give a small print nod to the risk of addiction, but it's packaged in glamorous images of people rolling in money and enjoying themselves and socialising. What a laugh. Sin will make you feel wanted and accepted. And then it'll sink its claws in, throw a hood over your head and drag you away to a life of slavery and it will rule over you. But... You must rule over it. That is the last thing that God says to Cain. You must rule over it. How does one rule over sin? There's a couple of ways. You can react. You can avoid sin. Resist it. Give it a wide berth. That's one way to have mastery over sin, reactively. You can rule over sin proactively. So by uh, paying more attention to the things that you can and must do than the things that you shouldn't do. So carve a more proactively, carve a more deliberate path of obedience. Not just knowing where not to step, but following in Jesus' footsteps. Or as it says in Galatians, by keeping in step with the Spirit, which means practicing things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You might know the rest. So we rule over sin reactively by avoiding it. We rule over sin proactively by practicing good. But it also means believing and accepting something that is true, that has almost nothing to do with you. Ruling over sin means recognizing that sin is a defeated foe. That God has already won that battle. He rules. The offspring of the woman has already had victory. It means believing and accepting that through Jesus' life of faithfulness and his sacrifice for you, the power of sin over your life has been broken. If you're trapped in sin, that's on you because the power is broken. Sin no longer rules here. God has redeemed you from slavery to serve him, which is true freedom. I'm going to point you in the direction of Romans chapter 6. 
but I'm only going to read verse 14 and, and we're close. But you could read uh, the verses around it and see more of this theme sort of carried through. But I'm pretty confident Paul is remembering Genesis chapter 4 when he says this. He says, Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Let's pray. And Father, we would pray that sin will not have dominion over us. Uh, But we've also just read that uh, sin does not have dominion over us. Uh, That sin doesn't rule here anymore. uh, Because it is a defeated foe. And Father, we also know that uh, we live somewhere between uh, the time when uh, this victory was secured through what Jesus did uh, and a time in the future uh, where it'll be finally tied up with a bow uh, and we will know full victory uh, for ourselves. Father, we pray that you'll help us to uh, take hold of this truth and see that sin uh, might look scary, it might have uh, long claws, uh, but it's, it's a mirage. It's been defeated. Uh, that Christ conquered even as uh, he was struck, he struck back. We pray, uh, nevertheless, that you'd help us to put this into practice uh, as, we, uh, as sin crouches at our own doors, seeking to have us and seeking to rule over us. Help us to not be ruled, but to rule in your strength. Uh, help us to not give in to temptation. And God, may we also learn to give you our all, our best, and to do it with all our hearts. Amen.